I want to always be open to that inspiration, open to opportunities, despite the challenges. I think those challenges create opportunities in some way. There's an advantage to being disadvantaged. You're not going to outwork us. We're much more resilient. We're going to be more resourceful. We're going to be more optimistic and think about what we can do instead of what we can't do based on the struggles that we've had. The future is just so obviously bright for all of our communities as we go forward, leading this country forward. This is Associations Thrive, the podcast celebrating successful associations and their leaders. I'm your host, Joanna Pineda, CEO and Chief Troublemaker at Matrix Group International. Listen in as top association executives tell all, revealing the creative and innovative ways they're increasing membership, generating revenue, nurturing engagement, and reimagining their organizations. By the way, if you've launched a new initiative, created new member services, or updated your governance structure and are seeing great results, I want to hear your story and so do my listeners. I'd love to have you as a guest. Go to podcast.matrixgroup.net and apply to be on Associations Thrive. Now let's dive into this week's show. Today, I have the huge honor of speaking with Antonio Tijerino, who is president and CEO of the Hispanic Heritage Foundation, or HHF. Antonio, welcome to the show. Thank you, Joanna. It's a pleasure to be here. Hey, tell us about the foundation. Tell us about HHF. The organization is a 501c3, and we're set up in the areas of education, workforce development, social impact, and culture, all through a leadership lens. We've been doing it for a long time, and we've built out a pretty remarkable structure to be able to be really flexible and go into different areas. In fact, during South by Southwest, we did a presentation called A Malleable Mission, and it was really important to get the message out that we are not rigid in what we do, that we are open to inspiration at any moment by meeting a kid, by meeting a parent, by hearing a news story. At any moment, we are open to taking the mission in different directions, and we've been able to do that and build a brand as an organization around that. If it's going to the border to support the migrant crisis, then another moment, I have a friend that starts at Minecraft and calls me and says, hey, let's do something together. And I immediately say, yes, I didn't even think twice about it. And we developed the first Latino themed Minecraft game, Latin Explorers. Wow. In the history of Minecraft. And so we've been able to reach 30 million kids in 30 different languages because being open to that inspiration and we go into a lot of different directions from the TV show and the Hispanic Heritage Awards that we do at the Kennedy Center to teaching 100,000 kids how to code all over the country. And so I want to always be open to that inspiration, open to opportunities, despite the challenges. I think those challenges create opportunities in some way. There's an advantage to being disadvantaged. You're not going to outwork us. We're much more resilient. We're going to be more resourceful. We're going to be more optimistic and think about what we can do instead of what we can't do based on the struggles that we've had. The future is just so 
obviously bright for all of our communities as we go forward, leading this country forward. Antonio, take us back to when the foundation was started. What was the context and why are you needed? Originally, there was a Hispanic Heritage Week that was put together under the Johnson administration in the 60s. And then under the Reagan administration in 1988, they stretched it out to a month. So that was the starting of Hispanic Heritage Month. In order to commemorate that Hispanic Heritage Month, a group of amazing Latinos that were working for the, the two Rudys are two of the folks that I really think of, Rudy Valle Sanchez and Rudy Becerra and others, Gil Coronado and all these other amazing Latino leaders at a time that it was more difficult to be a Latino change maker than it is now. They pushed for a Hispanic Heritage Month. That month was September 15th to October 15th, and they needed a vehicle for it. And so they created the Hispanic Heritage Awards. It was a very small ceremony at the White House. From there, it turned into every year, thanks to several people that kind of started all of this, Elaine and Rick Bella, and they were able to take it from an event at the White House to an event that they were doing to celebrate Latino leadership across different segments, including arts and education and entrepreneurship and all these other areas. And that, after 35 years, has become a big deal that's at the Kennedy Center and is a TV show. Yes. I inherited that part of the program when I took over 21 years ago. I wasn't around in 1988 as a professional working here, but I always give credit to those that deserve that credit for creating this amazing platform that is America's Hispanic Heritage Month celebration. I then started through the leadership of Dr. Pedro Jose Greer, who was my board chair and my hero and the guy who hired me and a past honoree of the Hispanic Heritage Awards, who started the Hispanic Heritage Foundation. Before I got here, it was the Hispanic Heritage Awards. That was the name of the organization. So we went forward and built out leadership programs, workforce, education programs, all of the things that we stand on now were built out over the last 21 years, thanks to my team and my board and tons of very supportive partners that have supported us as sponsors. Amazing. So, hey, before we talk about the things that you're doing to thrive, and it sounds like thriving you are. Talk to us about your journey. How did you get to become president and CEO of the foundation? Dr. Greer hired me. It was right during 9-11 that they were reaching out to me. Ah. And I'm talking about like two months later, I accepted the job. I can't lose sight of what that tragedy was like and that impact on every single person in this country for a lot of different reasons and in a lot of different ways right. and in the world. And so everything changed, including how you did events, how you fundraised, how you connected with folks. It really was a difficult time to start anything, but my background was in communications. I was at Fannie Mae Foundation doing PR and communications. Before then, I was at Nike in corporate communications out in Oregon. Before then, I was at Burson Marsteller, a big PR firm in Conan Wolf, also in the comm space and public affairs space. So he took a chance on someone that didn't have any background on running anything besides running my mouth. And so that's when I was able to really 
run in any direction I wanted. He told me, I'll be your offensive lineman. You run behind me, carry the ball, just focus on the mission. Don't ever lose sight of who you're serving and that this is a service-oriented job. And I've tried to do that and be really true to who Dr. Greer is and who everyone that came before me and the tribute that you pay every single day to our ancestors and to the leaders that are with you through inspiration, through guidance that you get. And Dr. Greer, I just interviewed on my Fritanga podcast that just came out and it really captures, he's in the healthcare space, but it really captures the spirit of HHF and what I still live off of in terms of that inspiration and that guidance that he gives me, that moral compass to what we do. Antonio, you say that you have a different approach to running HHF. So tell us about that. The approach is to have big ears, big heart, and big guts as you go forward with anything. Love that. Just being able to take in any sort of inspiration, being open to inspiration at any moment, going into different directions, focused on the community and what the community wants and needs. And we've been able to do that. During times of crisis, throw blows all day long and see what lands. Being bold, being naive. There's a naivete that is often underlooked and underappreciated. It's actually seen as a negative. I love being naive. I actually think we can do stuff that allows us to get started on it that might not be feasible or practical for someone else. Everything is available for us. I believe if you imagine something, it can be real. And the only thing in between it is action to make it possibly be real. So naivete, being aggressive. I am extremely impatient. I love that I'm impatient in this job. Impatient with somebody taking a baby from a mother on the border. I'm impatient with racial injustice. I'm impatient with homophobia, with Asian hate. I'm impatient with anti-Semitism, Islamophobia. I'm impatient with a child not getting the same benefits in terms of digital equity as another group of folks. If you're somewhere in rural America, I also want to be able to be a little reckless. I have always said that you can't create something if you're not willing to break something. And we have no problem just being aggressive. I'd rather have mistakes of aggression than mistakes of passivity. I don't want to be passive in our approach to supporting our community. Yeah. That's not an easy thing, by the way. And also being collaborative. Always ask for help. We're as good as the call we get and the call we can make. As an example, during COVID, I remember that farm workers weren't provided with protective gear. They weren't seen as a priority. Meanwhile, they're picking, packing, and delivering our food that we're sitting comfortably in our homes during COVID eating. And it was so, talk about essential. I had a friend of mine, Mario de la Torre, who was a designer out of LA and said, we're not working. We want to sew something, want to sew masks to help someone, wow. our community. And I had just read an article about farm workers not being protected. And I said, what about farm workers? And he said, I'd, we'd love that. And he was calling out of LA. I then patched in Monica Ramirez, who is a past Hispanic Heritage Awardee and one of the most amazing people I know. She's like my sister and she's just another source of inspiration. Immediately, she went into action and started calling people that would be able to distribute whatever mask we would put together. And then I called Nicholas Gonzalez, who's an actor, and looped into it. So here the four of us on a call at around 10 at night. And the next day we had hashtag masks for farm workers. Wow. Mostly due to them. We wanted like 10,000 masks. That was our goal. 
And we ended up with 2.2 million masks. Amazing. Again, I give the credit to all of them, but I just want to prove my point. The importance of being naive, the points of being a little reckless, impatient, collaborative, and audacious. But I was as good as the call I got from Mario, and I was as good as the call I made to Monica and Nick. And that's what I'm trying to say to everyone that's listening and to you, Joanna, that we are conduits for missions, for action, problem solving. You have to see yourself as an accelerant or some sort of viable source of energy, but not everything. You're as good as the people that you surround yourself with. And I'm very fortunate to surround myself with amazing, actionable leaders. I like actionable leaders. And everyone that wants to lead followers, that just seems so boring to me. You want to lead leaders. Hey, let's talk about HHF. So you talked about the pandemic and the things that you're doing, and you talked about digital inequalities. Yeah. The pandemic was really hard on the people of color communities with the health inequalities and the digital inequalities. So how do you approach some of these inequalities with this impatience and naivete that you talked about, but how do you also prioritize when the needs are so great? Okay. So this is a very good question. I've been asked this because when I first started, everybody was like, he's all over the place. And then all of a sudden you're getting an award and they say, oh, this is adaptable leadership. No, I'm still all over the place. I just have been doing it for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. And so I can't prioritize someone's suffering. Mm. So we take everything on. That being said, it's impossible to take everything on. But whatever comes at us, we try to prioritize in that moment because there's a priority on immigration if a DACA recipient is worried about getting thrown out of the country or an undocumented person isn't even eligible to apply for DACA. So that's a priority in that moment. What's happening on our borders is a priority. What's happening in Latin America is a priority. What's happening with somebody who's Afro-Latino and feels that they're not being treated well within our very own community because we have a problem with racism and homophobia and sexism within our own communities that we have to point out, can't give ourselves a pass because we happen to be at the other end of it. We should know better, in fact. So everything becomes a priority when it's in front of us. And I never want to lose that spirit. Now, that's incredibly exhausting. And during COVID, that became our kind of policy priority. Again, amongst many others, the farm workers popped up because I was inspired by Monica and by Mario. Right. And so that became a priority. But I'm just saying in terms of things that we want, if education and workforce development and access to healthcare are in your line of view, then digital equity has to be part of it. There's such a thing as digital discrimination. When some preschooler is going to be in an unequal starting point to education because they don't have access to the internet at home or a device right. and every other kid, that's where you're going to listen. When teachers can't communicate with parents, not because of a language barrier, but because of a digital barrier, that's a problem in terms of your involvement with your child, in terms of education, healthcare. Anyone remember trying to get set up for a COVID test or any of the materials that you can get? It was all done online. Try to get a job if you're not going online. Try to mobilize people. Right now, Joanna, a 15-year-old with access to Wi-Fi and a computer has the ability to reach more people than Martin Luther King, Gandhi, and Cesar Chavez in their lifetimes combined in a split second. Yeah. So you have to be able 
to leverage that kind of resourcefulness and power through technology, but you can if they don't have access to technology or a device and our communities will suffer. Not to mention on a global stage, we're going to be at a disadvantage over many countries if we don't get that part of it right. And I give a lot of credit to Jessica Rosenworcel, who's the chair of the FCC, who I know has dedicated her life to this issue. And I'm very proud to support the FCC's work in this area in terms of making sure that everyone at least has a chance through some of the work they're doing. So yeah, that's a real thing. And it continues. This often called the homework gap, and we've done some research around it. Latinos are most likely to say their grades suffered or they couldn't finish their homework because of lack of access to Wi-Fi. Yeah. Yeah. I know during the pandemic here in Alexandria, they were sending out surveys to the families, and let's hope the surveys actually made it home, to ask who didn't have internet because they were actually subsidizing internet access because they were so worried about the outcomes. That's in Alexandria, and I tried rural America or a border town. I know. I was going to say, I feel lucky that in Alexandria, they did that. In Alexandria, they delivered food basically all week. And then post-pandemic, they've continued to make all the school meals free. And that's in Alexandria. And I know that is not the case in other parts of the country. Yes. So that's why it's important that we continue to push. If you're someone that is of a certain situation, those two meals at school are the only two meals you might have all day long. Right. Not to mention you're the opportunity for a parent to be able to go to work. So we need that across the board. And I do think that they're trying to do that with digital equity. Hey, Antonio, speaking of youth, you've got something called the Hispanic Heritage Youth Awards. And I read on the website that you last time accepted 10,000 applications. So tell us about this. This sounds amazing. 30,000. 30,000. Okay, well, you got to update the website then. The things need to update. I know, I told you. <laughs> I told you we're working on that. We got 30,000 applicants the last few years. And what are they applying for? And what's the award for? Well, first of all, it's from 50 different states, plus Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C., and other Caribbean countries as well that we're able to take in, including Filipinos and Brazilians and Haitians. We want to make sure that we broaden Latino, Hispanic community is. So they apply in 10 different targeted tracks, we call them, or fields, including science and technology and engineering and sustainability and entrepreneurship and social justice and education. So we build out these pipelines and we select 300 from that 30,000. And then from there, we recognize them in digital ceremonies across the country. And we partner with amazing companies to be able to support each one of those categories. And then they get grants, not just for their education, for higher ed, they're all seniors in high school, juniors, seniors, mm-hmm. but also in case they want to use that money to start a nonprofit, to run a clinical trial, to create a product as entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs, whatever it is that they want to do. And then we support that through our lab, Loft Lab. So it's been a great way to let youth lead. I always have a problem when somebody says, leaders of tomorrow, the next generation of leaders, you should see these bios of these young people, they're leading today. Ah. We can't afford to wait. And I want to make sure that they understand that their task is to lead right now. That's what it's going to take to move our country forward, especially when we're the youngest segment of the population. A third of our entire community is 18 or under. That's a tremendous opportunity for America to invest in the most 
fertile segment of population and the one with the greatest promise along with the others, of course. And so right now in K through 12, it's, I think it's over 28% are Latino, but less than 10% are teachers. Ah. Well, how do you square that? And it's even worse with the African-American community and Asian community, I think is 3% are teachers. Right. So we need to make sure that that keeps up too, because that affects parental engagement and seeing someone that represents who you are and your identity will go a long way towards putting you on a stronger path to success later on in life. So how have you generated this growth? I read that you had 10,000 applications and you say last time you had 30,000. How are you fueling this growth? Because this is amazing. What are you doing? Celebrities, more funding, what's working? Mostly it's that people need these programs. People need these ideas. We're teaching 100,000 kids how to code. That's because Google invested in it and all these other Ah. companies are investing in it. And as well as there's a need and teachers buy in. We worked with the Kid Museum here in Bethesda to be able to use making as a way to engage kids into the STEM areas. And it was a teacher academy around the country for teachers to then get trained on how making can help them with what they're teaching in classes and have them be certified. So there's just so many different ways to address these issues. And you just have to be creative and bold and actionable. And again, make mistakes of aggression. It's better to be too aggressive than too passive in my belief. Boy, leadership is a continuing thread in all of your programs, whether it's your youth awards or some of your other programs, the uh, Heritage Awards program, but also you've got something called the Loft program and the Loft Charla. So tell us about those. They seem like amazing programs for connecting people and just nurturing leadership. Thank you. One is the, the Loft program, Latinos on Fast Track, is where we actually have a sourcing part of it. When you've been doing these youth awards, and getting all those applications and staying in touch because they can join LOF whether they got the youth award or not. And you've done it for 20, it's 25 years as of this year. You've got hundreds of thousands that we have kept in touch with that are between 15 and 40 years old. So that allows us to work with companies and be able to place top talent with these companies and also the public sector. So there's the sourcing part. You're also able to go into a lot of different directions. We're taking on an issue If we're addressing issues of mental health, we have a network that we can tap into. If we're addressing issues of access to healthcare, hate crimes, I mean, we're able to mobilize in a lot of different ways. And that's where Charlas came in, especially during COVID. We're doing weekly Charlas on different issues. And tell us what a Charla is. A Charla is an informal conversation, but when you're gathering hundreds and sometimes thousands of people on a Zoom during COVID, and you're talking about access to food and food insecurities, and you have a self-selected group of people that are doing five minutes on their point of view on the issue or their experiences, it's very powerful because we listen to our community. That's where we get our guidance. Our community leads us. It's not the other way around. And so those charlas are very helpful. It's almost like a focus group that you're doing live where we're getting guidance in terms of what the needs and wants of the community are and where we need to go. We've also been able to take the Leadership Institute where we get cohorts of up to 300 young people and do leadership training specific to their area of study or their area of focus. And we've also done it with professionals in terms of we're looking at happiness. A happy leader is a better leader. 
Ah. What is that work-life balance? And so we're going in a, an entrepreneurship that we're looking at doing too. You get a cohort of entrepreneurs. How do you connect them with each other? Social capital is so important. You got referred by Don. I'm going to listen to Don. You have this social capital that is often later in life in our communities. How do we instill that at a young age? If we've got hundreds of young people that are high school seniors and they're interested in technology or interested in sustainability, how do we connect them to each other? So a kid from San Jose knows somebody from Newark, and now they're connected with a commonality of sustainability or of education. They want to be educators or in the media and entertainment category. Now they're connected to each other. And we've seen this 25 years later after doing this work through the Youth Awards. We have six past Youth Awardees on our board, including my chair. Wow. So now they know how this all works. So when I have somebody from our board say, look, we should look at blockchain as an opportunity for young people to go into. And he's a blockchain expert. He's like, I'll host a Charla on blockchain or we'll do a hacking a career in blockchain. And then that'll go. And then somebody else does it in the entertainment space. And then somebody else that was a past youth awardee did it in the marketing space. You know, marketing is usually something you fall back into sales and marketing. No, it's something you should lunge towards in terms of being the, the gas that powers the engine of any company. And she's at Google. So we're able to go into a lot of different directions. I have a cyber expert on our board, Michael Eccles, who's from this area, and he's able to give us guidance in that space. So all of a sudden, we're working with IBM on a program where we're taking Latinos that might be making minimum wage, didn't have the opportunity to go to college, and now can take an assessment, pass, go into a program, and then be placed into a job in cyber and IT and all these other areas. So we're trying to support the community in every way we can. And I have to say, half the time we're getting the credit for things that others are bringing us. Hmm. I can't tell you how important it is to just be open to being inspired. You have to have big ears along with the big heart and the big guts. So Hispanic Heritage Month is September 15th through October 15th. It's not all of September and not like all of October. Oh, we claim it, though. You claim it. All right. So all of September yeah. and October. Let's I start <laughs> September 1st. Actually, uh, August, <laughs> late August, I'm already gearing up. And I'll take it all the way into Thanksgiving at this point. And by the way, we're Latino year round. But that particular designation, I think, is now spread over two months. Well, I love it. So what should we be celebrating this year during this entire season of celebrating Hispanic heritage? What should we look forward to? You should look forward to working in your community, supporting the needs of the Latino community to celebrate Hispanic heritage year, year in and year out. That's the number one opportunity. Martin Luther King once said, everyone can be great because everyone can serve. So go out and serve somebody and feel great about it. That impact can be made at any level doesn't have to be 2.2 million masks for farm workers. It can be going to Mary's Center and supporting their work or Crittenton services. It doesn't even have to be in the Latino community because there's so many of us, no matter where you go to help those in need, you'll be helping a Latino and everyone else that's important too. This isn't segmented. We support other communities as well because we look like everyone. Everyone looks like us. That's the beauty of our community. That's how you celebrate. I think also listening to this podcast and listening to my podcast and taking in the culture and also being able to celebrate the great promise that we offer America and 
figuring out how to be part of that celebration is also important with us because there's so much commonality and we just appreciate anyone that wants to join our community. We are open. I don't care if you don't speak Spanish. I don't care if you don't speak English. I don't care if you speak Tagalog. I don't care what ethnicity you are from, anything else that you bring. I think it's important that as Latinos that we define who we are and no one else is defining us, but that definition needs to be broader and broader and broader and broader mm. and more inclusive. We have issues within our own community, as I said earlier, in terms of racism and homophobia and sexism and Islamophobia and anti-Semitism and everything else. And we need to be more accountable because we should know better after being at the other end of it. And so that's what I would say is to celebrate the diversity within and outside of the Latino community. I love the message. Hey, before we go, tell our listeners about your podcast. I've had a chance to listen to it. It is wonderful. And we will put a link in the show notes. Hey, thank you so much. It's called Fritanga, F-R-I-T-A-N-G-A. Fritanga is a place where you go to eat down-home food that is a mishmash of different kinds of food. It's Nicaragua, and anybody who's been to Miami knows them. Colombians also go to fritangas, and it's a way of community coming together over food and the diverse kinds of food is kind of what I was trying to put together through this podcast that we want to cover a diversity of topics from authors like Juno Diaz to cultural icons like Crazy Legs, who was the, some say the father of breakdancing, to Alex Cuba, who won the Grammy for Best Latino Artist. Also heroes like Dr. Greer and Monica Ramirez, Maria Teresa Kumar from Boto Latino, were able to go into a lot of different spaces. My friend that we were doing the, the Minecraft game with, Jamie Cambron, who's a wonderful muralist out of Atlanta, who's undocumented. Nava Mao, who's a trans actress, who was on HBO shows, we want to make sure that we're trying to cover across our culture and everything, perspectives that we want to make sure that we can highlight. Along with Patty Hinnich from Patty's Mexican Kitchen. Oh my goodness. In the middle of it, I just started screaming, this is why I'm interviewing you. <laughs> She's so smart and so absolutely charming and inspiring. And just the intellect to things like cooking that you don't realize is behind it. It was wonderful experience to interview my guy, Dr. Greer, especially as a highlight of all those interviews I was, I've been doing. And also, I just did some financial folks in the Latino space that I think is important to have that financial health as well as the mental health and yes. all the other areas. And we talk about comfort. We ask every guest what food, what music, what TV or book bring you comfort. And those answers are pretty remarkable. Antonio, this was a treat. This was a pleasure. Thank you for teaching us to be naive and to be bold and reckless and impatient. And I hope that you will come back in the future. I know that you got twisted into doing this, but I hope that you'll come back in the future. It's a great opportunity and I'm grateful. I was just trying to figure out. And I know that if I said yes, it meant that there was a powerful force behind it and it was you. <laughs> so I appreciate everything you're doing in your audience. Thank you very much for the opportunity. It's a privilege to be able to talk to your audience and, and to get to know you. And let's go out for some Filipino food. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you some links. I would love it. I would love it. And I hope you'll come back and talk to us about the new and different things that you're tackling. Every day you'll see something new. Go to hispanicheritage.org for updates on everything we're up to. Again, the community leads us. So 
we're going to get that direction from where our community wants to go. Thanks for listening to Associations Thrive. We're so glad to have you here. You know, my personal mission and the mission of my company, Matrix Group International, is to help associations and nonprofits increase membership, generate revenue, and thrive in the digital space. I want to hear stories of how your organization is thriving in today's challenging landscape. Please apply to be on my show by going to podcast.matrixgroup.net. By the way, do you need help with a digital initiative? Maybe it's a website redesign, a new membership database, or a hybrid meeting that you're planning. I'd love to connect with you. Please visit the Matrix Group website at matrixgroup.net. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode of Associations Thrive. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, leave a five-star rating, post a comment, and share it with your colleagues and friends. Bye. Bye.